Uh, well, if you're new with us, um, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors, and I uh, want to welcome you again and let you know we're really grateful uh, that you're here. Uh, if you are new with us, we've been walking through, about to finish up, actually, a series through the book of Genesis. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, make your way to Genesis chapter 49. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. On that table back there, there's some black hardback ones, and you can go grab one of those uh, and keep that. That's our gift to you uh, as a church, and you'll be able to walk with us together as we walk through Genesis 49 uh, this morning. Uh, a few years ago, 2019, uh, the updated Lion King movie came out, and uh, a local theater in Raleigh, we were living in Wake Forest at the time, had, I'm pretty sure they called it Adult Serial Night. Uh, and so the Lion King started at like 10.30 at night, and uh, it was all-you-can-eat cereal with the movie. And so uh, they would just keep bringing fresh bowls of cereal to your chair as much as you wanted, uh, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, the original Lion King came out in 1994, the year that I was born. Uh, and so I uh, kind of grew up with that movie, of course. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, grew up with that movie. And uh, so to get to watch this new Lion King on the big screen with as much uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Fruit Loops and I think Apple Jacks uh, that I had to my heart's delight was really nostalgic and really a good time for me. And I know you're probably wondering, like, what in the world does that have to do with the Bible or what we're going to talk about uh, this morning? Uh, but believe it or not, we're actually going to see that the entire Bible is about the Lion King. Uh, this is what the whole Bible is about, not the one that came out in 1994. This one's a little bit older uh, than that, eternal actually. Uh, but, but this is the hope of the world. This is what all of the story of Scripture is heading towards, the revealing of who this Lion King is. That's what we're going to see in Jacob's prophecy today. And so let's look at it uh, together now. Genesis 49, we're going to read through the first 28 verses. And so starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today, that speaks to us like this. It says, And Jacob called his sons... And said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in, digni in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies." Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his borders shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. 
He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel." By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to run through most of these sons pretty quickly. Uh, A lot of these prophecies and blessings are pretty cryptic, and I don't think it would be all that helpful for us to speculate. And so Uh, We're going to run through most of them pretty quickly so that we can focus our attention on the one that the story focuses its its attention on, uh, which is Judah. We'll cover him uh, at the end. But Jacob starts here with Reuben, and he calls back to mind what Reuben did in Genesis 35 when he slept with his father's concubine. Basically, uh, it's like he slept with his stepmom, and he did that as a power play to try to gain dominance and be the kind of preeminent person in the family, but like most of Reuben's plans and tricks, it didn't really work out. And Jacob says, Reuben, he's really a fool. He's driven by his passions. He's unstable. Uh, He has terrible character. And because he has terrible character, he's forfeited the right of the firstborn, and the blessing of the firstborn will not be his. Jacob is uh, seeing his poor character still at the end of his life and taking one more opportunity to call him uh, to repent. And then he moves next to Simeon and Levi, and similar to Reuben's blessing, his blessing to Sim- Simeon and Levi is much more like a curse, because he uh, calls back to mind what they did to the Shechemites in Genesis chapter 34. Uh, that was a fun story. Uh, go ahead and go back and watch that sermon if you weren't here for that. Uh, but this was when uh, the Simeon and Levi convinced all the men of Shechem to get circumcised and then slaughter them all while they were sore and recovering Uh, from being circumcised. And so Jacob rightly says, uh, you guys are violent men. I don't want to be in your company. And because you're violent and because you're so quick-tempered, you're going to be divided and scattered in Israel. And this is really true. As you continue reading through the Old Testament, the Simeonites uh, really drop off the map. You don't hear much about them anymore. And Levi is scattered. He doesn't have a, a plot of land for himself. He's scattered amongst all the tribes. Uh, He moves next to Judah, we'll come back to him, but after Judah, he says Zebulun will be by the coast and will hang out in the sea. Uh, He's going to give birth to a bunch of Californians. Uh, It says Issachar is going to be, uh, find a good place to live, but they're going to be servants. 
Uh, Dan's going to have judges and leaders in Israel. Gad is going to get raided, which that's not really a fun prophecy, right? Like, sorry, Gad, somebody's going to come into your town and beat the mess out of you. Uh, Asher gets a little bit better one. He's going to be having some good food. Naphtali is going to be a a doe frolicking through the fields, which uh, sounds pretty cool, I guess. And uh, Benjamin is going to be a ravenous wolf, which uh, that doesn't sound too great. But then notice how Jacob kind of zooms in here and gives about five verses worth uh, to Joseph. And and this picture he paints of Joseph is a picture uh, of a man who was blessed by God and in turn became a blessing to others. He paints Joseph as kind of looking like the man in Psalm chapter 1 who meditates on the Word of God day and night and is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, that its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Uh, When Jacob says the archers attacked him severely, he's probably talking about uh, what the brothers did to him and all the unjust suffering they brought into his life. But through all of that unjust suffering, Joseph remained faithful. He remained unmoved in his trust in God. And through that faithfulness, uh, he became a blessing to others. But as awesome as Joseph has been in the story of Genesis, and even in this prophecy, he's not the focal point of this prophecy. The focal point of this prophecy uh, is Judah. Look again at what Jacob says about Judah in verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Now, where have we heard that language before? This is almost word for word the dreams that Joseph had about himself in Genesis chapter 37. And so what we're about to find out in verse 10 is that the Messiah is coming through Judah's line, uh, but by giving the words of Joseph's dreams to Judah's descendant, what I think God is doing here is showing us that while the Messiah is going to come through Judah's line, he's going to look like Joseph, um, which I just have to tell you is really great news for you and me. Jesus comes through Judah's line because he is the savior of sinners, not righteous people. Like, Joseph is a picture of Jesus. When Jesus comes, in many ways he's going to look like Joseph, but Jesus comes into the world through Judah's line to show that he is the savior of horrific sinners like Judah and you and me. Uh, Jacob goes on in verse 9, he compares uh, Judah's descendant to a lion, and then look again at what he says about him in verse 10. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So when Jacob's talking about the scepter and the ruler's staff, he's talking about kings. He's saying kings will come from Judah's line until, and uh, this is a really hard line to translate, and I'll be honest with you, I don't remember my Hebrew, so I'm not going to be the guy that comes along and definitively solves this. Uh, But I think weighing the evidence, probably the best translation is the footnote in the ESV. And so if you took the footnote in the ESV, this verse would read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Jacob is saying that uh, kings and a line of kings is going to come from Judah, but there is one king in particular that is coming, one who will be like a lion. He's the OG lion king, if you will. Uh, And this lion king is going to be the one that the kingdom and kingship really belongs to. And the obedience of the nations, the obedience of all the peoples 
belongs to him. This is the king that's being promised uh, to come in this. But not only that, Jacob also gives a picture of prosperity and blessing when this king comes. He says this king is going to bind his uh, donkey to the vine. Now, if you bind your donkey to the vine, what's going to happen? And if you don't know, it's okay. I'll be honest, I didn't either. I had to look it up. No shame. Uh, it's okay to not be okay here. But, but what's going to happen? Uh, the donkey is going to eat all of the grapes. And so the only reason you would do this and bind your donkey to the choice vine is if you just had so much of it that you're not worried about it uh, at all. Uh, Jacob also says this king is going to wash his garments in, in wine, which, once again, if you're washing your clothes in wine, you've got some sweet coin, right? Like that, That's just a different level of wealth than everybody else. That's like blowing your nose with $100 bills. Like you're just on a different level of rich than everybody else. I, I mean, jo, jo, Jacob's painting this picture that it's just going to be blessings and prosperity all around when this king comes. When this king comes, the curse that our sin brought into the world is going to be undone. This king is going to get us back to the garden. He's going to be strong with eyes darker than wine and teeth whiter than milk. And something we've mentioned a few times in this series in Genesis is that Genesis is really not a standalone book. It's, it's part one or chapter one of a five-chapter book, uh, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible should all be read together as one book. And, and what you learn as you continue to read through Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy is that the author of the Pentateuch uh, has put what John Salheimer calls seams into the other books of the Pentateuch to show us that the whole Pentateuch uh, is pointing us to look for this Lion King to come. Uh, this pops up again uh, in Numbers 23 and 24 and Deuteronomy 31 and 33 to show us that this is who Genesis through Deuteronomy is about. This is who the Messiah is going to be. This is who we should be looking for, this Lion King from the tribe of Judah. And so, who is he? Well, it's not David, right? David is a king from the line of Judah, but he doesn't rule over the nations, and he sins and he dies. Same thing with Solomon. Solomon is the king from the line of Judah, but he doesn't rule over the nations. He sins and he dies. And so, who is this? The, the one that this prophecy is about, the one we are to be looking for, is Jesus. Jesus is the Lion King from the tribe of Judah. In his first miracle at Cana, he turns 150 gallons of water into the best wine. He makes the wine flow like this king was promised to do. Uh, he rides into a, on a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy about this king in Zechariah chapter 9. This is who Jesus is, and, and what Jesus has come to do as this king is he has come to fulfill the hope that Jacob expressed in verse 18. He has come as the Lord to bring salvation. Uh, in Revelation chapter 5, John the Apostle sees a vision of heaven opened and a scroll in heaven uh, that no one's able to open. And he begins to weep about this because he, there's no one in heaven that's found worthy to open this scroll. And then listen to what he's told again in Revelation chapter 5. He says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And so John hears of Jesus, this lion king from the tribe of Judah that was promised in Genesis 49. But as you keep reading Revelation 5, what it says is that John sees a vision of a lamb standing in heaven as though it had been slain, and everyone begins to worship the lamb because the lamb is the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And so what we find out as we continue to read through the story of the Bible is that the way that Jesus accomplishes his victory as the Lion King is by washing his clothes red, uh, not in the blood of grapes, but in his own blood. Jesus accomplishes victory as a lion by dying as the lamb in our place for our sins. Jesus is the lion and he is the lamb. I haven't heard anybody put it better than Augustine. He, he says, Jesus endured death as a lamb. He devoured it as a lion. Why a lamb in his death? Because he underwent death without being guilty of any sin. Why a lion in his death? Because in being slain, he slew death. And because Jesus, as the lion, has slew death, in his death, he has put our death and sin to death. What Revelation 7 tells us is now, through Jesus, we get to wash our clothes white in the blood of the lamb. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are forgiven, we are made whole, we are cleansed, we are set free. And what this forgiveness frees us up to do now is to follow Jesus as our good king. You see, the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus forgives us of our sins, but also that he frees us up from them, it, it, that he frees us up to not have to walk in them any longer so that we can be free. I mean, notice again what Genesis 49 says about him, that the obedience of the nations belongs to him. Like primarily what it means for Jesus to be king is that we owe him our obedience. Because last time I checked, kings don't make suggestions. They make commands. They don't hand down royal suggestions. They hand down royal edicts. They make commands. Like following Jesus, it's not this democracy where we get to kind of negotiate our way out of uh, obeying what he clearly calls us to do. No, to follow Jesus as king means we gladly submit our lives to his good rule and, and obey what he tells us to do. But the temptation for all of us, even though it will play out in different sorts of ways, the temptation for all of us is to treat Jesus much more like a life coach than Lord, much more like a motivational guru than king. Because then we can treat what he says as a suggestion, uh, and we can take the parts of his teaching that we like and apply them to our lives and uh, neglect the parts of his teaching that we don't like and, and disregard them, all in the quest to keep improving ourselves and giving ourselves the happiest and most fulfilled life possible. Like Jesus gets to sit in the passenger seat, but we still very much are driving the car of our lives. But listen, hear me, like, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's just not all that interested in your self-actualization project. He's just not all that interested in negotiating what you're going to obey and what you're not going to. He's just not all that interested in conforming his plans to your big plans and dreams for your life, and praise God for that. Like, listen, I think we need to stare this biblical picture of Jesus in the face for a little bit because I don't know that we always think of Jesus in this way. He is not life coach. He's king of everything. 
He rules and he reigns and he will crush his enemies when he returns. He has opened up the way for you to know him and to follow him. But if you do not submit your life to him, you will be separated from him for an eternity when he returns. And because of who he is as the king, the only right response for us who follow him is to give him our obedience. We owe him our obedience. This is, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So much of discipleship, of, of growing as a follower of Jesus, is us learning to trust Jesus as our good king, and then out of that trust, obeying what he tells us to do. John 14, Jesus says that the way we demonstrate our love for him is by obeying what he says to do. Discipleship is the work of bringing all of our lives increasingly under the lordship of Jesus, every area of our lives, so that increasingly more and more, he gets to call the shots and he gets to make the rules. But what all of us do in our different ways is we reject the lordship of Jesus, we stiff arm him and we say, no, Jesus, you don't get to touch that area of my life, you don't get to have a say here, and we treat the clear commands of God like suggestions. Uh, there was a season in my life in college when I was getting drunk all the time, and uh, the whole time I was doing it, I, I knew that it was wrong. I was a follower of Jesus at the time, and I had read my Bible, which clearly says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, do not get drunk with wine. It's really hard to make something that says do not get drunk actually mean do get drunk. Like, there's a lot of times in your life where there's not an explicit command in the Bible, and you've got to use some wisdom on what you should best do, but... But here it was pretty explicit, right? Like, like, don't get drunk. You don't have to know Greek to know that when it says don't get drunk, it means don't get drunk. And so I knew all of that, uh, but what I would do is I would lie to myself and, and try to justify myself and, and play down the guilt in my conscience, try to make up all these reasons of, you know, well, I'm not going to a party, or I'm not going to be driving, or it said don't get drunk with wine. It didn't say anything about beer, so surely God understands, uh, and surely this is going to be okay. Look, whenever you and I do that, wherever it is in our lives where we know the clear command of Jesus, and yet we still choose to disobey, and then we try to justify ourselves and soothe our conscience uh, so that we can neglect obedience, it stunts our relationship with Jesus. It blocks us growing in intimacy with him. It, it would be like you cheating on your spouse and then justifying it by saying, well, I'm still getting her flowers, or I'm still helping out around the house, or I'm still taking care of the kids, so surely that evens things out and that makes it okay. No, it, it doesn't, and you're going to continue to be stunted and blocked in your relationship and intimacy if you do that. The, the same thing is true here with Jesus. All of us have these areas in our lives where we're tempted to treat the commands of Jesus like suggestions, to treat Jesus more like a life coach than a Lord. And so what I want us to do is to just walk through a few of these areas so that we might walk more faithfully under the lordship of Jesus. We might keep growing as his disciples. We might more and more submit our lives to him as our king. And so as we walk through these, you're just going to have to kind of know yourself and ask yourself, like, where is it that you're tempted to tone down and explain away and shave off the rough edges of the Bible's teaching and treat the commands of Jesus like a suggestion? 
we're not going to cover every area of our lives. I, I think this would actually be a really good exercise for you to think about this week and then talk about together in your community groups uh, the areas that we don't talk about. Um, so this isn't going to be exhaustive, but we'll walk through two big categories. And so one, the first way that I think some of us uh, are tempted to treat the commands of Jesus uh, like suggestions is through being tempted uh, from the world's pressures. And I think primarily the way that plays out today is by us being encouraged to walk in lockstep with everything that the sexual revolution uh, has brought about and, and to celebrate and affirm everything that the sexual revolution has brought about. Like, I, I know that you see this, uh, but our culture is working 24-7, 365 days a year, seven days a week, and doubled up during the month of June to convince you that homosexual activity and transgenderism and sex with whoever you want and however you want are just things to be celebrated and applauded and affirmed. Like, our culture has invested all of its resources in getting you to believe that the greatest sin that you can commit is to deny someone the right to express who they think they are and the right to love and be loved by who they want to be. That if you are not affirming and celebrating of every sort of homosexual activity and transgenderism, uh, you're just the worst sort of backwoods bigot fundamentalist that there is. And so for you to come along and get out of step with that and to say, hey, uh, God's good design for marriage, it actually is a really good design for marriage. Hey, maybe we shouldn't celebrate Drag Queen Story Hour at the library as a symbol of cultural progress. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be letting our teenagers, who we don't let drink or drive or vote, uh, maybe we shouldn't let them get hormone therapy and reassignment surgeries. Maybe giving ourselves over to these things as a society is not going to lead to our flourishing. If you do that and you speak up about that, you're going to be hated you're going to be mocked, you're going to be shunned. Like, I, I've said this before, but, and this is the area where we are going to be tempted to tone down and play down and explain away the Bible's incredibly clear teaching to save face in culture, uh, especially if you're in your 20s and 30s or younger. And listen, I get it. Like, I get the temptation to want to fit in and want to be liked and want to be accepted and not want to make waves. But listen, I've just got to tell you, you have to give up that desire if you're going to follow Jesus. Because if you're going to follow Jesus in this area and affirm what the Bible affirms, you're not going to be cool. You're not going to be liked. You're not going to be accepted. You're going to be mocked and shunned. And listen, before we go any further, hear me say, I'm not talking about if you struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria here. Um, those are realities of living in a broken and fallen world that I think some of us are going to experience. And while I think it would be uh, legitimate to call those broken or disordered desires, uh, they're not sin in and of themselves. I'm talking about acting on those attractions and desires. But, but just to press this further, for some of us, the way we're going to be tempted to treat the commands of Jesus like suggestions here is not by so much doing this ourselves, but just by giving approval to those who do. I mean, because who are we to tell people who they can and can't love? Who are we to tell people what they can and can't do? But I just have to tell you, that's not loving. 1 Corinthians 6 says that people who practice homosexual activity will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so listen, like, no, we should never be jerks. 
But it is not loving to foam the runway to hell and affirm as righteous what is going to earn people the judgment of God. Like, please don't lie to people about this. And, in, and just to go further, another aspect about this, an area where we see this play out, I, I think is around the whole issue uh, of abortion. Um, with the sexual re- revolution, uh, sex increasingly got taken out of the context of where God designed and intended for it to be uh, in the safety of covenant marriage between one man and one woman who have pledged themselves uh, together for one lifetime. Uh, and we as a society increasingly thought that we could have such a thing as responsibility free sex. And one of the ways we lie to ourselves about this as a society is with abortion, because now if this supposedly responsibility-free sex leads to pregnancy, leads to a child, well, now we're just free to get rid of it. I think you see this in the way we've been discipled as a culture in this, in the way that the conversation around abortion from those who are in support of it has transformed over the past few decades from them saying they wanted it to be safe, legal, and rare to now treating abortion almost as a sacred right and a social good, the most fundamental of human rights that can never be taken away. But listen, we should not make our unborn children pay the price for our desire to have responsibility-free sex without anything impinging on our freedoms. And listen, I'm not naive. I know there are other reasons that women have abortions. We can and should have discussions around provisions for rape and incest. We can and should uh, work to advocate for better laws that don't leave men and women in crushing cycles of poverty so that they don't feel like this is the only option they can turn to. We as the church should be taking the lead when a woman has an unplanned pregnancy. We should be the first place that they know they can go to for love and for care and support. Like we should walk in all of those things and have all of those conversations. They all deeply matter, but what we cannot do is let those be a red herring and a distraction from the fact that on the whole, we as a society are killing our unborn children by the millions so that we can continue to try to have responsibility-free sex without anything impinging on our freedoms. And because, listen, even if you would say, well, I'm personally pro-life, but I can't make that decision for others, or we can't legislate our morality. The reality is that every law is legislating someone's morality. That's not the question. The question is, what is it that's in the womb of a pregnant woman? If it's a person, then we are obligated before God to treat that person as what they are, as someone made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and protection and love and respect. This is what we're obligated to do. And the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 1 that God knew Jeremiah before he formed him in his mother's womb. It tells us in Psalm 139 that God saw David's unformed substance and then formed and knitted him together in his mother's womb. It says that we should not murder one another because we're made in the image of God. Proverbs 6.17 says that the Lord hates the shedding of innocent blood. Proverbs 31 says that we should speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And what we've always known biblically and theologically, we now know scientifically as well. Science has caught up to the Bible and has told us that what's in the womb is not a clump of cells, it's a person. And so we have obligations to the unborn as persons made in the image of God. They are worthy of our dignity and our respect and our love and our support. 
And, and so honestly, we should be celebrating the mess out of Roe being overturned, and then we should double down our efforts. We should double down our efforts to continue to advocate for the unborn legally. We should double down our efforts to continue to advocate for better laws that don't keep people trapped in crushing cycles of poverty, and we should continue to serve on the front lines through places like pregnancy resource centers. This is why we're solidifying a partnership with Hand of Hope. We want to put our money where our mouth is, and we want to give you an opportunity to walk in obedience to Jesus in this area. And so for some of us, this is going to be the way that we're tempted to treat the commands of Jesus like suggestions. And listen, I know this is going to sound harsh, and I know there are many people who have walked through these things in this room, so I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to condemn you, but I have to say this. Abortion, active homosexual practice, transgenderism, these aren't the unforgivable sin. But they are sin. Sin that needs to be repented of. Sin that needs to be turned away from. Sin that needs to be dealt with and brought to the cross of Jesus for forgiveness and healing. And hear me, don't get caught in the lie of shame and guilt. It is sin that Jesus will forgive and will deal with if you will bring it to his cross for forgiveness. We doing okay? Uh, well, <laughs> buckle up, we've got some more. Because uh, we'll just go to the other side now. So for some of us, that's going to be the way we're tempted to uh, tone down the commands of Jesus. But for others of us, it's not going to be so much the pressures of the world. I, it's going to be more of what maybe we could call the pressures of the culture of the church. And so primarily, I think the way this plays out is the temptation to not treat others and not view other people with the grace and love that you have received from Jesus. Because I think some of us, in our zeal to defend the truth and to defend what is right, seem to forget that gentleness and love are commands. That you're actually commanded to be gentle. You're commanded to be kind. You are commanded to be loving as a follower of Jesus. And so you may have the truth, uh, but if you're a jerk about it, you don't actually have the truth as well as you think you do. And so maybe an example, uh, if your goal is more so to own the libs than it is to see people come out from under things that are destroying them, you're in the wrong. And, and listen, I think one of the primary ways, at least to me, the way I see it, the way this plays out uh, is in the whole conversation around the way we think and talk about racism. Listen, it is an integral part of the gospel that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is not just uniting us back to God. He's not just reconciling us back to God. He's reconciling us back to one another. That's not critical race theory. That's Ephesians chapter 2. We as the church, we are called to bear witness to the reality that Jesus has made one new man in place of the two and has killed the hostility that used to exist between the peoples. We are called to bear witness to the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom where people will not be discriminated against simply because of the color of their skin. We serve a king who justifies us by grace through faith, not through our skin color. And so if you and I find ourselves in a society that still disproportionately benefits white people and negatively affects black people simply because of the color of their skin, we should not be able to be comfortable in that. We ought to address that. And we should not be able to write that off as, well, you know, slavery ended a long time ago, and uh, Jim Crow laws are off the books, and desegregation happened, and so yeah, there was racism in the past, 
But there's nothing stopping a black person from being able to do anything that a white person can do now. And so if there's any disparities that still exist between white people and black people, uh, it must be because they just haven't taken responsibility for themselves. They just haven't, uh, done, they just haven't taken advantage of their opportunities. And, and listen, I know it doesn't sound real good when you put it that bluntly, but that's what many of us are logically implying. That's the logical conclusion of the way that we think and talk about these things. And if you think that's unfair, if you're frustrated at me, just, just give me a second. Let me build my case for you. Because uh, I'll just give you some statistics. As of 2019, the average white household in America had eight times as much wealth as the average black household in America. As of 2018, uh, black people were being put in prison at a five times greater rate than white people in America. And so if that's the case, if that's the reality, you've got to do something with that information, right? You've got to find a way to explain it. Why are those disparities happening? Is, it, is that wealth gap taking place because uh, black people don't just, just don't work as hard as white people do, or they just don't save as well, or they just don't take advantage of their opportunities uh, like white people do? Uh, and and is, is that crime rate, is that happening because black people as a people, they just commit more crimes than white people do, or they're just more predisposed to be criminals? Or, or is there an explanation for those disparities that doesn't require us having to say that there's something in the skin color or the culture of black people that is causing those disparities? Let's go ahead and take the last one for 400, Alex. Uh, because listen, I find it to be an ironic disconnect for us to be a people who trumpet the fact that we are saved by grace. Nothing we've done to earn it or deserve it. Every good thing we have in our life is a gift from God that we have received. And then to come over here and everything else in our lives talk about, no, I earned everything I have. I worked hard for it. Nobody gave me a handout. I didn't take help from anybody. And so if somebody's not where I'm at, it must just be because they don't work as hard. It must just, must just be because they they haven't taken responsibility for themselves. And listen, I'm not saying there's no place for personal responsibility here as part of the explanation. I'm just saying in the face of such glaring disparities, it cannot be the primary explanation, especially in a country that started, that got its start with race-based chattel slavery, then went to Jim Crow and all the horrific mess around that, then to segregation and desegregated when my parents were in school. That's not that long ago that maybe we haven't eradicated the effects of racism in America once and for all. Maybe there's still some effects that are still with us today, still exercising influence and power uh, on our land. I'll just give you one example. Go home today and look up redlining, how the government and real estate agencies systematically, uh, by and large, kept black families out of the suburbs uh, and, and did this. Like, uh, one of the primary ways to pass on generational wealth is through being a homeowner, but that was systematically denied to many black families not that long ago. Like that happened just a little while ago. And, and so, listen, if, if you're still frustrated with me, hear what I'm not saying. Like, I understand you were not alive for slavery and you didn't own slaves. I understand that you didn't put racially discriminatory laws and practices like redlining on the books. And I understand that you aren't personally a racist, and I'm not calling you and I'm not suggesting that you are personally a racist. What, what I'm not doing here is saying all white people are racist oppressors. 
What I'm not doing here is telling you how to vote. I don't know how to vote. I don't know what's best. What I'm simply asking you to do here is to listen, to listen to our black brothers and sisters in Christ who are talking about the ways they're experiencing racial discrimination without shouting them down and saying, no, that's wokeness. That's critical race theory. We just need to preach the gospel and that will fix racism. Look, we don't and we shouldn't do that with abortion. We preach the gospel and try to reform hearts and consciences and change the way that people think and feel about abortion. What I'm trying to do in this sermon, at the same time, we understand that abortion is a systemic injustice and that unjust laws like Roe need to come off the books. We preach the gospel at the same time we advocate for a just society for the unborn. And the same thing should be true here. Because Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said, yeah, it may be true that the law can't make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important as well. Listen, so maybe before you met Jesus, you were able to say, yeah, racism's not my problem. I'm not personally a racist, so I don't have anything to worry about. Maybe before you met Jesus, you were able to be comfortable in a society that disproportionately benefits you and negatively affects other people simply because of the color of your skin. But when you met Jesus, black brothers and sisters who are in Jesus became your brothers and sisters. So it is your problem now. Because if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer together. Once again, that's not critical race theory. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are called to privilege one another's interests above our own. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to walk in step with the truth of the gospel in this area and bear witness to what Jesus has done in the gospel to kill the hostility. Those are commands. None of those are suggestions. And hear me, in all of this, with all of these issues, even if there are people that you don't like that believe it, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Look, even if there are Republicans who just use abortion as a political football to try to get votes, that doesn't mean that what's in the womb is not a person. Even if there are Republicans who truly don't do anything for the unborn once they're out of the womb, but yet still advocate for pro-life causes, that does not mean that the baby in the womb is not a person. Even if there are people on the left that make everything about race and identity politics, that does not mean that there are no systemic racial disparities that still exist in America. The questions are, does justice for the unborn need to happen? Does systemic racial discrimination still exist and need to be addressed? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then then let's be about it. Who cares what anybody else says? Because we have an allegiance to a higher king and kingdom. We follow the one who is the lion and the lamb, not the elephant or the donkey. We follow our king Jesus wherever he goes, whatever he tells us to do, no matter who it puts us out a step with. Because Jesus is the king of the whole world. He's the one we owe our obedience to. And he's a good king. No other king would die for his sinful people like he has. Every command of his can only be for our absolute good and flourishing. He's worth it. He's worth our obedience. Let's trust him and obey him and go wherever he goes and do whatever he tells us to do. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, God, would you do this in us? Would you make us a people who are joyfully obedient to whatever you tell us to do, who don't 
lop off different areas of your word as suggestions when you've given them as commands. Jesus, help us. I know this is a hard word. I know there are areas where all of us need to be honest with ourselves, myself included, and repent for the ways that we've treated your commands like a suggestion and where we've tried to be in the driver's seat of our own lives. But Jesus, would you give us the grace to know that you are worth it, that you are a good king, and that everything you command us to walk in can only lead to flourishing. No matter what, who it puts us out of step with here, it can only lead to flourishing. So Jesus, would you give us the grace to just be a people who are boldly obedient wherever you call us to go? Please do that in us as a church. We long for nothing more than to walk as your disciples in obedience to your commands. Do it in us even now. I pray you'd be doing that work in our hearts. In your name, amen.